Hey, Love Tribe, get excited for another great episode with Chase and our special guest. But before we start, I wanted to remind you about our amazing and free 14-day happy couple challenge. I don't know about you, but with the upcoming holidays, I'm feeling this hectic energy and I'm craving some grounding, fun, and meaningful connection with my partner. So whether you've been with your partner for many years and you're needing to mix things up or you're a newly coupled and you're looking to dive in to learn more about each other, the 14-Day Happy Couple Challenge is perfect for anyone wanting to deepen their relationship and have fun while doing it. So head on over to our website to sign up. You can start connecting deeper physically and emotionally today over at idopodcast.com slash 14 with our simple, easy, and doable daily challenges arriving straight into your inbox daily. This free 14-Day Challenge will help you break the old habits and build new engaging habits that will push you to create a deeper intimacy with your partner. Sign up today for free for the 14-Day Happy Couple Challenge to start strengthening and improving your relationship today. Head on over to idopodcast.com slash 14. That's idopodcast.com slash 14 to sign up for our free challenge today. Hey guys and girls, thanks so much for tuning in to today's show where I welcome John Kim, aka The Angry Therapist, and Vanessa Bennett. And John and Vanessa are not only licensed therapists and relationship coaches, but they're master plate spinners. They write books, host podcasts, create mental health content, and raise their toddler together. And today we talk about what it's like to be in a relationship when you're both professional therapists and the things that they have to navigate that we all have to navigate. And I think it's such a unique angle to to hear from them that they're struggling with a lot of the same things that we struggle with and how they navigate it with the extensive knowledge that they have. And some of the things we talk about are how to deal with anxious avoidant attachment styles, how to deal with ambivalence. If early on in the relationship, or it could be any time that yourself or you feel your partner is a bit ambivalent in the relationship, how to navigate that, some daily practices that you can do to strengthen your relationship and a whole lot more. As always, we really appreciate you guys tuning in. We've been getting more five-star reviews as I've been requesting them on the pre-show here, but just leave a review. If you guys enjoy this podcast, we really appreciate you leaving us that feedback. If you provide that, we are able to continue to provide the show for free. And we're just right there alongside you getting this knowledge, trying to apply it to ourselves and our relationships. So keep doing the good work. It is not an easy path sometimes, you know, it's it, it's hard, but it's well worth it. So thanks a lot, guys. Enjoy today's show. Hey, John and Vanessa, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, excited to talk. Today, we're going to talk about your new book. 
And in the pre-show, I was sharing how I think it's so great that you guys share your personal stories of you know things that you're navigating in your relationship. And you obviously have a unique angle, both being professional therapists. So let's have a free-flowing conversation around, around your new book, why you guys decided to write it. And then I'd love to hear kind of some of the, the major things that you guys are referencing as it pertains to your relationship and navigating that as two professionals who help other people in their relationships. Yeah, I mean, the the point of this book isn't just what's in the book, but it was the tone of the book. And we really thought that it was important for us to present ourselves in a way that was authentic and real. And that means that although we're therapists, we have shortcomings, um, we struggle with things. And, you know, uh, I think a lot of people, when they see their therapist, uh, they may be thinking in the back of their mind, I know I did, man, that that therapist must have a perfect relationship or Wow, I would love to see um, what their that therapist, my therapist. Uh, I would like to see how she is in the relationship. They have their shit together. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we're here to just kind of show you, at least for us, uh, that relationships are hard. No one's perfect, and we also have our struggles. Yeah. What are some of the the main things that you guys share in the book related to your personal struggles? Yeah. I mean, I think we start out, you know, the way that we wrote the book was almost like, it's like three acts almost. It was kind of like the before the kind of middle or like the, the antagonistic point in the movie. And then now kind of where we're at currently. And we wrote it that way because based on the issues, I guess, for lack of a better term, that we also see in working with clients when we're working with couples, it felt like it made sense. So for example, the kind of beginning of our relationship, we it was not smooth. It was actually pretty rocky. John was very ambivalent. Um, I felt a lot of uh, not being safe in the relationship because he was kind of push-pull in out. And so it lent itself to us talking about ambivalence as an issue that we see a lot in other people as well as ourselves. Um, it also lent us to talk a lot about the beginning of the book really is centered on John and I kind of pushing against this idea of the one and why we think the concept of the one is so detrimental to romantic relationships. Um, you know, it it provides a bit of an escape hatch or like an eject button, if you will, for a lot of people. You know, if this if this person doesn't match up exactly and we're not in sync all of the time, then they must not be the one. So let's bail, right? And so we use kind of that beginning, middle. I don't want to say end, I guess, current of our relationship to go through um, what a lot of couples struggle with in the beginning. And then if they've made it to that kind of middle part of their of their relationship, you know, then what are some of those major struggles that they face at that point? And then long term, what are kind of some of the long long term, right, issues that they also face? Yeah. So if you want to get specific, um, Vanessa and I are very different in that we have a different attachment styles. I'm more avoidant. She's more, oh, I'm, you're more I'm, anxious. I'm more anxious. <laughs> She's more avoidant. Um, our love languages are different. She's more active service. I'm more words of affirmation. Um, our stories are different. You know, she's New York. I'm LA. Um, different kind of struggles with codependency. So coming into the relationship with different codependent behaviors and traits, which I dive into in an entire chapter, um, I'm the over-functioner. He's the under-functioner typically. So a lot of these these dances. Yeah. Right? And so if you put all those into a pot, it's just a mix of um, struggle and hard conversations, you know? And so 
Um, that's what we go into in the book is how do, um, how do we manage this? How we sort it out? How we take ownership, which is the, the, the important piece. And then how do we build something with legs? Let's talk a little bit about the anxious avoidant cycle because I really love attachment theory and I've found a lot of value in understanding my attachment style just on my own and, and how I show up in relationships. So what are some of the things that, that cause conflict in relation to your attachment styles and how have you guys found you've been able to navigate it? Sure. Chase, what's your attachment style? If you don't mind me I'd say I'm, I'm more towards anxious. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, how that shows up, and of course, you know, there's a spectrum and Vanessa and I have been working on um, ourselves for, for a while. So uh, we're all swimming towards secure, but um, I tend to hold on to Vanessa's leg and then she tends to run. So I tend to um, um, crave uh, assurance and um, I need her to tell me that uh, she finds me attractive a lot. And, you know, I need that constant um I love you and I'm here and that stuff. Right. And the more that I need that, the more it uh, activates her avoidant, which is her um, wanting to slip out the back door. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for anybody listening who's maybe not familiar, only like surface familiar kind of pop psychology, you know, attachment styles aren't the end all be all, but they are really important to understand. Kind of like you were saying, Chase, it, it is really helpful to know that about yourself, whether you're partnered or not. And really what it has to do with, right, is as an adult, when that kind of abandonment wound or that rejection wound is being activated, how do you respond, right? So how do you respond to that anxiety? So some people tend to cling more and some people tend to put up walls and and back off, right, to protect themselves. And so when we say anxious and avoidant, you know, those are the two extremes. There's also disorganized attachment, which typically comes from high trauma backgrounds. And it's a bit of both. You tend to kind of swing back and forth between the two. Um, And then there's secure, right? Which like John said, we're all swimming towards. And so it's so common. I cannot even tell you the number of of couples we see that come in that are on the opposite sides of, of those two, those two spectrums or of that scale. And so it makes sense that when one's activated, it activates the other, which then further activates the other. And so when we're in that state of wounding, we're not seeing each other. We're looking at each other through our activated attachments. And it leaves one person feeling left or abandoned. And it feels one person feeling engulfed, um, which makes them want to run, right? So understanding that and then working through, you know, like learning tools to to help self-soothe when you're activated can help you turn towards your partner instead of turning away or help you lean into becoming more intimate and vulnerable rather than looking at them as kind of like the opposition or or like you're fighting against them. Yeah. And, and by the way, there's more than these attachment styles, but because our book is a, um, what's the word? Cornuco- cornucopia. Yeah. We've been, we've been told that our book is a cornucopia yes. of relationship advice. So <laughs> yeah, it's definitely the primary colors of a, attachment theory. Yeah. You can go deeper, obviously. But the, the way that it shows up, being aware of it, and then uh, you processing and working through your own attachment style, you know, and, the, and, and most people, um, if you, they're not looking at it, then they're just reacting uh, from that activation. So what's really important is to be aware, like when I feel the tug of wanting her to um, make me feel desired or or when I feel clingy, right? Um, instead of doing that, stopping myself, taking a breath, and then 
seeing if I could, you know, re- retrain, reparent, reset myself on my own. And I think that's where the, the growth is, right? That's where you take ownership, uh, making sure that I'm self-soothing, self-soothing and not putting that on her. Right. We've definitely covered attachment theory, dedicated whole episodes to it. And our listeners will know if you haven't already, if you're out there listening, definitely take an online quiz, find out your attachment style. It's so valuable to do just on your own. Like we said, even if you're single, but even if you're in a relationship, I think a lot of times people might think or feel a little bit hopeless, like, well, my partner is not really where I'm at. They don't want to be working on it. But you can do a lot on your own in this in a an example of understanding it, maybe you're anxiously attached and it can feel terrible, especially if you have an avoidant partner and you feel abandoned and and left. And if you get these tools for yourself to be able to, as you said, John, self-soothe, it's such a powerful thing to be able to do that, that we really have the power to do it. We don't necessarily need our partner. It's great if they're getting on board, but uh, we can start ourselves. Right. Yeah. And you know, what's hard about self-soothing is uh, there's this other piece to it where if you do self-soothe, um, you you can also kind of be angry or resentful at your partner, which you shouldn't be because it's almost, you know, it's your, you're taking care of yourself. But because you're not used to that, because you're used to people soothing for you or taking care of you, once you start doing it by yourself, there's almost this like... Um, Resentment. Yeah, this is this, this like light uh, crust of resentment that starts to form. And so it's important to be aware of that as well. Mm. So you're not doing it with anger. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much to unpack. And obviously, there's all different situations, different dynamics, depending on attachment style. I want to ask you guys, as two people who are, you know, well informed on these things and in navigating relationships, you help your clients and then you guys are in your relationship together. I know as someone who, you know, I'm approaching 400 episodes of this podcast, I'm by no means as educated and in practice as, you know, a therapist, but I get all this information. I know our listeners are out there getting this information. I want to improve and grow, but sometimes I feel like it can almost be, I don't want to say detrimental, but like I have to step back and be like, all right, stop over processing things. Stop mm-hmm. over analyzing yeah. like my anxious yeah. attachment and how I'm showing like all these things and trying to solve it if I'm in a relationship. And so as two people who are, are therapists, like very much in this field, how do you navigate that? We touch on this concept in our episodes frequently. We're better able to show up as our best selves in relationships when our bodies and minds are in a state of harmony. PMS and perimenopause throw a wrench in that whole state of harmony thing. Many women in our community have seen their relationships and their own mental health suffer when PMS and perimenopause symptoms set in. Our sponsor, Happy Mammoth, saw that there was no effective nature-inspired solutions to these issues, so they made one. Estro Control. Relationship Advice listeners can now get 15% off your first order on happymammoth.com with our promo code I do at checkout. Estro Control is a formula developed by Happy Mammoth, a supplement company dedicated to making women's lives easier. Estro Control contains science-backed herbal extracts that help support hormonal health. 
The way ester control eases PMS is pretty interesting. The ingredients help support the liver, and that's where our hormones get processed, especially estrogen. So when estrogen isn't processed well in our liver, women may start having PMS symptoms, like spots on the skin, cravings, and feeling low all of a sudden. Estro Control was created to help women feel like themselves throughout the whole month. Estro Control is made specifically for women who are premenopausal. It's really great for perimenopause when hormones start to fluctuate and PMS can become especially rough. PMS has been a constant challenge throughout my life, from feeling down to sleeplessness to just not feeling comfortable in my own skin. PMS has put me through the ringer time and time again, and I know it's not just me. I've seen my relationship suffer in those times when PMS takes over. Estro Control works to relieve many of those consuming PMS symptoms, helping us regain control. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first month at happymammoth.com with the promo code I do at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the promo code I do for 15% off your first order. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're, you're, <laughs> you're hitting on something. Uh, and I think that we actually have become a little bit of a culture of kind of self-diagnoses and um, almost an addiction to self-betterment. I think social media has been an amazing tool, but also I think it can be addictive, right? We all know that. Uh, Over um, over dissecting, over labeling, simplifying, judging, you know, slapping, uh, you know, um, um, labels on people, all of that. Yeah. And I, I think what's important, well, first of all, it feels like a running joke. People say like, oh, you guys are both therapists. What is that relationship like? Do you just walk around and analyze each other all day? (laughs) It's like, no, that would be exhausting. Um, I think we put on our therapy hat and then we take off our therapy hat. And then when we don't have that on, you know, we're, we're kind of fumbling around as well. We just happen to have the tools to reach for when things get hot, when things get activated. And that to me feels like the sweet spot chase between I'm constantly in this um, state of self-analysis or even analysis of my partner versus utilizing the tools that I know, understand, um, have really embodied when I need them. So they become a toolbox that you reach for when necessary versus... um, it almost becomes something to kind of hide behind. I've seen people who have so much cognitive knowledge of uh, therapy tools and processes and and theories almost use it as a way to stay not it to not get intimate, um, to not get vulnerable. It's like it's like a it's a way to hide. So to me, that feels like kind of that sweet spot. It's valuable to have you say that. I know personally, and I think for our listeners, if if you're tuning into the show. You want to improve yourself, improve your relationship, and that's great. But I think there's a lot of value in in stepping back and in away from that space and going, you know what? I'm on a journey here, and it's okay. I'm not where I want to be, and I don't need to constantly be self-analyzing, analyzing my partner, because that can be quite detrimental. And there's a, a self-love aspect, too, of like not being so hard on yourself that we're just trying to figure it out. And I think it's so valuable that you guys are sharing from your perspectives as professionals in this space that, hey, you're dealing with the same things that that we all are. Right, right. Yeah, and and I still get into this, the overanalyzation space too, overanalyzing space. And it's not to say that we don't do that. Um, sometimes we can get a little too deep into it, but 
you know, for me, I, I tend to be somebody who does rely a little bit too much on my logical left brain, if you will. And that is a way for me to hide. And I know that about myself. So if you know that tends to be your go-to um, and it's a way to stay in your head and out of your body and out of your emotions and out of your connection to others and connection to self, then when you catch yourself overanalyzing, you know you're hiding from something. You know you're actually using it as a way to disconnect. And so that awareness can be a really awesome tool to say, all right, stop, put down the books, put down the podcast, right? Not saying don't listen to the podcast, but, uh, and live, live your life, be in the experience of it and allow that to, I guess, motivate or be the kind of directing uh, force for you to continue to do the work, right? Because we can read all the books we want. We can listen to all the podcasts we want. If we're not living it, um, there's no embodiment. You talked a little bit about ambivalence and and how that was something that uh, you guys were trying to address and you address in the book. What would you tell listeners out there who either themselves feel sometimes ambivalent in the relationship or their partner of how to begin addressing that and, and navigate it? Yeah, so that was um, my story. Explore why you're ambivalent. And I think instead of hiding it, you got to share it with your partner because if you leave your partner in the dark, the ambivalence is going to be um, misconstrued mm-hmm. and uh, your partner may think, oh, uh, either this person is, you know, uh, just shady in the way that he he loves or he's not into me. So why am I with this person? Mm-hmm. Uh, my ambivalence came from being single for a long time. And then, you know, being caught up in this idea of the one. And so uh, Vanessa, you know, happened very fast. We we got set up on a blind date. You know, she wasn't someone that um, um, that I met, at, you know, at a bar or I swiped on. Um, a friend set us up. And so I went on the date. I thought she was attractive, of course. Um, but then I also knew her story and who she was and where she was at, that if I was to commit to this, this is probably going to be a long-term relationship and this is going to be quote unquote the one. And that scared me because um, I was, I was kind of like trying to sow my oats. I was trying to make up for all the stuff that I didn't do in my twenties, you know, like uh, I've never had a one night stand or I've never uh, woken up with someone I didn't like. I just want to experience singlehood and um, tap into a little debauchery before I, you know, put the wheels back on and start, start to love. And so uh, when she came, I kind of felt like I I needed more of that. Um, And so that's why I was ambivalent. Uh, I felt like, you know, when you um, turn your lease in and you have to decide, are you going to buy this or not? (laughs) I felt like the, uh, the singlehood car was the the lease was up on that shit and I need to to decide. And um, I, w- I wasn't over on my mileage. I still had a lot of miles <laughs> left over. This is the first time I've heard you use this analogy, by the way, and I'm kind of obsessed with it. I'm making it up as I go. <laughs> um, so that turned into ambivalence. And then, of course, on her side, um, she's texting her friends and her friends are saying, fuck that guy. He's not what uh, he appears to be on social media, which is very hurtful. I didn't know this until later, of course. Um, and then that's where, you know, that's where our story started. So it started with ambivalence and on the rocks. That's such an interesting space. And and thank you for sharing because, you know, it is really tricky, especially early on in a relationship, like of being in that space of, you know, wanting to be single maybe and explore, but also having a 
feelings and, and really being attractive to someone. And I know there's not like a, a right or wrong answer in that space. I think we need to communicate with the other person, as you alluded to, that, that they understand where that ambivalence is coming from to be vulnerable. But how did you navigate that? And clearly, you know, you struggled with it. What were some of the things that, that helped clarify the situation for you? I mean, I, I'm going to jump in and say, I won't speak for John. Obviously, he can speak for himself. But one of the things that we talked about uh, quite a few times was him. And we say this in the book, you know, he said to me, like, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know? There was a handful of times where that came up. And I remember explicitly saying, I I don't. I don't know. Like, that's not, I'm not coming here saying, I know that you're the one. Um, for me, it was really about practicing presence and saying to him multiple times, in this moment, I feel good when I'm with you. In this moment, I feel happy. In this moment, I want to see you again. I want to pursue this. I want to learn more about you. I'm interested, right? And I kept saying that to him over and over that that is really all I had to go on. Um, but how do we have more? No, nobody has more than what's in the present moment. Um, you know, I think anything other than what we're knowing right now is... I mean, it's kind of made up. It's pulled from fantasy. It's pulled from what we hear on social media and in media, you know, movies and, um, you know, Disney and all of this. And so I just continue to kind of relay that to him. And, and that was for me, the way that I moved through, is this what I want to do or not? And then we got to a point a few months in where we had gone through a couple cycles of him seemingly kind of pulling the rug out from underneath me. Like I'm in this and then now I'm not. And I, this was something I, I really struggled with, which was, this was the first time really, I would say in my adult life that I chose myself. I said, I don't, I'm not going to beg you to love me or like me even. Um, I'm not going to contort myself into somebody that I'm not in order to make you like me more because a lot of his ambivalence was around our differences. Um, you know, how just different we were as people. Um, this is who I am. This is what I'm presenting you with. Either you want to be in this or not. I, I kind of gave him a little shitter, get off the pot, uh, you know, speech. And I chose myself in that moment. And it, it, I didn't give him that as an ultimatum because I was hoping he would choose me. It was just like, this is where I'm at. This is my truth. And I think that was enough for him. And obviously, John, I'll let you speak for yourself. But I think that was enough for him to kind of wake up and say, oh, damn, um, you know, where am I really at with this? Yeah, and I think it was her drawing the line that made me decide um, either I'm all in or I'm not. Yeah. It was kind of the cold shower. It's so valuable for you guys to share because I think everyone is dealing with that early on in a relationship to an extent, you know, of like mm -hmm. what's going on, you know, where am I at? And I think it's important that both sides are communicating. And as you said, Vanessa, just being present, like you don't have to be like, this is the one. And, and that's, like you said, made up from the Disney movies, but just be present and checking in with yourself. And as you did, Vanessa, kind of respecting yourself and your boundaries of going like, look, I, I like you, but you're either in or you're out, you know, shit or get right. off the pot, <laughs> like you said. And, yeah. And this is exactly what we're saying about the one, you know, and it's, it, I hate to say that we don't sound romantic, but this idea of the one is it, it can be such a hindrance to us really loving fully and, and in the present moment, because it gets us so much in our head and it's so much pressure. You know, if I'm saying that you're the one that I'm saying that we're going to get married and we're going to be together forever and we're going to retire together and, and grow old together. All It's like, 
I don't know that. I can look at him right now sitting next to me and still say, I don't know that. How do I know that, right? I know even now, five years in, I know that right now I choose him. I choose to love him right now because that's where I'm at in the present moment. Um, But I can't speak for... 20 years from now, Vanessa, because I don't know that person. Whoa, yet. whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> what is happening here? <laughs> no, that, yeah. That, yeah. We, yeah. We, we define the one as the one in front of you. The one you're choosing right now. That's so valuable. And we've talked about that in past episodes of like constantly checking in. In a long-term relationship, you are constantly choosing that person. It's not, as you said, in 20 years. And there's a lot of value in that. It's actually not kind of a a negative thing as some people might initially feel. It's actually adds a lot of security of like, hey, I'm here now. I enjoy this now. I intend to continue this, but like, let's do this together. And for both on that page, then you're going to be in a good place. And whatever happens in 10 years will, will happen. Right. But, you know, it's because we're, we're so obsessed with the promise, you know, um, we want the guarantee, we want the ring, we want security. And so because of that, it keeps us um, out of the the here and now and more into, well, what if you leave or what if you cheat? A lot of what if questions, and which then activates fear. And then, you know, people uh, running or wanting, wanting more as in wanting the commitment. Yeah. And I, I think it's also, there's something to be said for the way that we, and this, this is kind of a radical departure, I think, from a lot of how we look at relationships, right? I talk in the book a lot about how, um, codependency has become this word that feels like a label. And I, I look at it as a clinician very differently. I'm very clear that we are all in this society, we're all codependent. We're bred to be codependent. It's how we're raised. It's the air we breathe. We are told that real love is codependent love. Um, you know, it's the getting lost in each other. It's the, you complete me. It's the, um, I should feel butterflies all the time. And if I don't, there's something wrong. Um, and, and all of this is, is, it's nonsense. Honestly, it's nonsense. It's, it's, it's codependent nonsense. And, it's not realistic, right? Like my partner, John, it's my partner, but for anybody listening, my partner is not simply a needs meeting machine that is going to keep me secure and happy for the rest of my life. That's not their job. That's not their role. And looking at partnership in that way is a very transactional way of looking at love. We, You promised me, you put this ring on my finger. And so because of that, you owe me. And that gets us into a lot of trouble because my partner doesn't owe me anything. My partner is the cherry on the Sunday. I owe myself a lot, but my partner doesn't actually owe me anything. And when I'm able to step back and look at my relationship in that way, first of all, talk about present moment, but also it keeps me responsible for my own happiness instead of outsourcing it. It also takes the responsibility off of him and gives him the space to be the autonomous being that he is. It gives him the ability to look at me in that same way. I'm the cherry on his Sunday, right? Instead of his mother, which we see happens so often in you know heteronormative dynamics. So I think this idea of the one, I mean, shit, we could go on a tangent forever about this, but we just, we feel really passionately about the sticky areas that it, it gets us into, you know, this belief. We've talked a lot about, you know, the start of a relationship and it's been really great as far as how to think of framing it. Let's talk about, 
where you guys are at now and when you're working with couples in the present moment and going forward, what's one of the things that is really valuable, maybe a daily practice that you guys find valuable to the relationship in the present? Well, first, we're not together anymore. <laughs> not true. Um, a daily practice is something that we have in the book. Uh, and for me, it's uh, finding beauty in the contrast uh, instead of seeing our differences as a defect or a shortcoming, um, instead of pushing that away, actually embracing it. And this is a daily practice, you know, um, in the moments, uh, finding her differences as beautiful, as unique, you know, so not only holding it, but embracing it and then swimming past that and then finding it beautiful. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, once you get to this stage of, okay, we're committed and we're in this. And now, you know, we have a, we have a toddler and we have a house and we have businesses and, you know, just life. I think people lose curiosity. They lose, um, yeah, curiosity is really the word that's coming up. There, there's a lot of loss of desire and curiosity for your partner um, I'm really into this this quote right now that Esther Perel says, which is fire needs air and how important it is that we give the fire of our relationships that air to continue to breathe and be stoked. And so for me, the daily practice looks like where can I find that air? Not just because I'm an avoidant and I always want air, but more like where can I find that air in service of my partnership? So if I can find that air, um, then I can look at him through the lens of curiosity again, like I did when we first met. And I think that's important because we tend to get to a place where we just assume that we know everything about that person. And so that loss of curiosity then, you know, squashes that that desire for the person. I love that, especially as you guys are, are saying and using it. But I've heard that in argument, in conflict, you know, if, if right. the partner comes at you and maybe they say something mean rather than defending yourself or engaging in, in conflict is get curious, you know, like literally ask like, hey, it seems like you're upset. Where's that coming from? So that curiosity is such a, a great muscle to, to exercise in relationships. Yeah, it's uh it's powerful and it also uh, blocks judgment. You know, I think we naturally will go toward judgment unless we intentionally turn that dial to curiosity. Yeah, the curiosity and judgment actually can't live in the same space, right? So if, and to John's point, it's a conscious choice. It's it's hard. It, I mean, I think our ego's natural place is defense, right? Which is really judgment. And so you got to really try and you're not going to be successful at it all the time. It's just not going to happen. We're human. But you have to really make an effort to continue to come back to curiosity. Like you're saying, Chase, like, what what is that? What's coming up for you? Where is that coming from? Um, in order to get through conflict without it being me versus you or you versus me. Well, guys, I think we covered a lot from the beginning of our relationship stages and some daily practices that we can be doing in the present. So thank you so much for sharing, for sharing your personal story. Before we wrap up, please let us know if there's anything that we skipped over or maybe that you want to emphasize what we talked about and where our listeners can find out more about you, about your new book, and then we'll say goodbye. Yeah. Uh, yeah I guess for me, I'd want to say... Yeah, um at the end of the day, this book is about taking ownership, which um, um, 
I need to be reminded of, of course, but also I think what's lacking in the world when it comes to relationships, we're very easy to point fingers and blame. So if you just take ownership, whatever that looks like for you, and we have two people doing it, it really flips that magnet back. And I really think it's uh, something that's needed in the world, both in relationships, but also just kind of globally on, on a right. macro level, taking ownership of your part. Um, so, yeah. So if you could take away that from our book, then that that's um, that's that's been the goal. Yeah. And I would say that this because of that really being the the through line of the book, I don't think you even need to be in a romantic relationship to read this and take things from it. I, I have found um, it's helpful in friend relationships, parental or family relationships, work relationships. You know, I mean, this idea of taking ownership and understanding yourself deeper, obviously can't hurt anybody. Um, so yeah, thank, thank you though, Chase, for, for having this dialogue and, and just kind of being somebody who's a champion to helping people understand themselves more in relationship. Well, thank you guys. I couldn't do it without the experts like yourself. So thanks for coming on. Where can listeners, uh, find your book and find you guys online? Yeah. So, uh, I'm on social at a few, a few different places. So on Instagram, I'm at Vanessa S. Bennett. Uh, TikTok, I'm actually the Coda Yoda. <laughs> uh, John is the angry therapist across all things. And then our book goes wide on September 6th. So you can find it anywhere. Amazon, all the indie partnerships, Barnes and Noble, all, all the places, Target, all the, all that jazz. Excellent. Well, our listeners can find those links in our show notes and on our website at idopodcast.com. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to come on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. As always, thank you guys so much for tuning into today's episode. As always, all the links to the guest as well as any of their recommendations will be in the show notes page. You can find the link to that in the episode description or by going to idopodcast.com. Click on the podcast tab up at the top and you will have access to all the episodes that we've ever done. There are over 300 of them. Uh, and while you're on our website, if you haven't checked out our free 14-day happy couple challenge, we really hope you do. It's a free email challenge that we send to you. It's 14 days of fun, easy, doable challenges to help strengthen and improve your relationship. And if you're looking for something that provides a little more help with working on your relationship, whether it's improving intimacy or communication with your partner or just bringing the spark back, we would love for you guys to check out our online course, Spark My Relationship. We're offering $100 off to all of our listeners if you go to sparkmyrelationship.com forward slash unlock. We've worked with over 15 psychologists and therapists to create the real life tools and strategies that they are teaching their clients. So we wanted to give them to you. It's a self-paced online course that can be done in as little as a month or up to three months. You can really decide how much or how little you want to do with your partner or maybe just yourself. So we hope you guys check that out. It's sparkmyrelationship.com forward slash unlock. Have a great day. You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com.